Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B, number 186. We have a good one for you today. A returning guest, we're having him back every year now. He is our resident futurist. He'll tell us all about the future and what we need to worry about and maybe not worry about in this podcast. It's a great chat. Uh, I'll be soon patching into the interview we did with Richard Watson. Richard is a thoughtful, in his own words, questioning, truth-seeking, self-obsessed, neurotic, contrarian writer that due to look more than anything else has ended up being labelled a futurist. And by the way, it's futurologist, not futurist. I think futurists are the kind of tarot card psychic type people. I'm not sure. But when I was in New York, I remember every second block had a little kind of alcove where you could go in and get your fortune told. And there was a big expose of them uh, about 10 years ago. If you Google psychics, New York Times is a great big article about the bullshit that goes on and how they do it. And I always used to think that at the time, the people, in, certainly in my life, the people who go to get their fortune told tend to be, and before everyone jumps on me with the gender thing, tend to be women. And I would include, I better not even talk about the trans thing. <laughs> they tend to be women. And I always felt that if the psychic thing and the future, telling the future, predicting the future thing had any merit, that it would always be uh, men who would go rather than women. Women tend to go just to, to be told when they're going to get married or when the knight in shining armor is going to arrive. But if there was truth to it, men would go to find out who's going to win the 315 at Doncaster or give us tonight's lottery numbers. So that alone, I think, is enough uh, proof uh, that it is all kind of crap. I always used to think about like religion if you know, we have like I've done quite a bit of study on the Gospels and things like that, uh, which none of my friends have done. Like they just swallow the kind of my 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 faith believing friends. They just don't go. That they would be the very people who would dig deep into COVID. Uh, they'd be digging deep into conspiracy theories. They'd be digging deep into the you know when is a fetus a child for their rants on abortion. But they never actually look deep into the origins and veracity of their religion. Uh, and if they did, uh, they would find that the whole thing is preposterous, inaccurate, written many, many years after our Lord Jesus Christ, profoundly uh, two-faced and speaking out of both sides of its mouth. And yet we just go, oh, no, 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 this is faith. This is, you know, the whole thing. Is concocted clearly now there maybe was a guy called jesus and there appears to have been a guy called jesus but the fact that we're following the dogma and the same applies for islam and probably to a certain extent judaism but anyway we're not going down that rabbit hole again back to richard most days he manages to make a good living telling people that everything will turn out okay despite the fact he's not sure himself sometimes perhaps if we could all worry less about what might happen and focus much more on what it is we could all like to happen, we'd all be much better off. He rather enjoys thinking about artificial intelligence, and we talk about that quite a bit in the podcast. Uh, the podcast also has a lot of interesting links this week. There's links back to Richard's previous appearances on the show, if you want to catch him out and see whether he was right, um, going back five years. And uh, also some interesting books we reference, uh, which you might like to find out more about. 
And Richard likes drawing these maps, which are fantastic. And there's a link to nowandnext.com where you can find them all. They're kind of like tube maps where you can spend hours wandering around things that may happen, things when they might happen, risks to the planet. He's got a whole host of them in there. And they're really, really fantastic. They're brilliant pieces of design as well. Um, he also loves Greece, which I do as well. Gardening, drinking wine, arguing with his lawnmower, smoking cigars. And he's got five books published and blagged his way into both the technology foresight practice at Imperial College London and the Judge School at Cambridge. Two of the best books he's written, I think, are Future Files from 2007, which was remarkably perceptive in many ways, and Digital versus Human from 2017. The other thing to uh, apologize for with this podcast is I was back doing Zoom for the first time in ages. I don't know wh- whether everyone else has had Zoom fatigue or, you know, has kind of stopped doing Zoom. Uh, it's uh, I don't know whether it's gone the way of those exercise bikes. But anyway, this is my first Zoom call for quite some time. And for some reason, what sounded fine in the recording equipment came out literally that there was too much bass on Richard's uh, audio and he is a little bit muffled, which you get used to. Uh, the best way of thinking about it is just imagine you're listening to a phone-in show. My, the quality of my mic is fine, but he's a little bit he's a little bit muffled. So pretend he's just calling in from a uh, lithium mine in Angola instead of the bucolic pastoral sheep farm in Wordsworth land or wherever it is he lives in the UK. Without further ado, as Ireland records its highest ever temperature since records began, climate change, what climate change? We discuss that and lots of others in the Fading Up interview with Richard Watson, part four. So I'm with the most requested return guest, would you believe, Richard? Uh, Richard Watson, the futurologist, not futurist, is uh, joining me for his fourth turn on the show, would you believe? And the last time Richard was on, we got quite the mailbag because over two things. One, and let's get the first one out of the way, which is what happened to Ted, your little lamb? I saw him yesterday, actually. Uh, He's not little anymore. He's quite large. Uh, He's a bit greedy. I don't know whether he recognises us or just recognises that when we show up, there's food involved. So uh, <laughs> he's doing very well. He's with the he's part of the Three Amigos. He's with Phil and um, Spot. The last time Richard um, was on, he had a pet goat, a pet lamb, staying in the uh, in the house with him, who's obviously gone out to pasture because he's got too big. And is he going to be eaten eventually, or used for wool purposes? Uh, I don't know. I think he might be just for fun. Um, he may, he's not going to be eaten by me, I can assure you that, of that. but he may eventually get eaten. Right. Um, well, he's a year old now. He's, most people would, would have sort of done him in by now. Yeah. Um, so no, probably not. Probably not. He's going to be the sort of farm pet. I should explain, I live next to a sheep farm. <laughs> and the great name was uh, Ted, given to the sheep. The second thing that happened, uh, and you can scroll back uh, to the uh, last episode with Richard, if you want to put him to the last two episodes, if you want to, in the blurb of the podcast. We were coming out of COVID, it was 2021, and you had reached sort of, not quite rock bottom, but you were unengaged, uninterested, uh, and and had a very... I'm not going to say pessimistic outlook, but you you were you were apathetic, shall we say? I think largely what I thought about the future. I think I might have said I don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> Generally, I'm pretty good. I, I you know now and again, it, I mean, it's a little bit bleak out there from time to time. I mean, you know, just as you've got through the bloody pandemic. Um, although you know, I still don't think it's over. I've never said it's over. Mm. It's still out there in 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 vast quantities. And yes, most people are just getting a cold. Um, and I do worry a bit about 
what's going on in China and whether this is my sort of conspiratorial side. You wonder whether they've got some real nasty version they haven't told anyone is about. A bit like they didn't tell us about it last time, but I think that's a bit unlikely. Um, and then, you know, we've got rid of Trump, although huh, I was speaking to an American the other day and he said there was a 70% chance of him running and a 50% chance of him winning. Mm. So that's, that's slightly anxious making. Um, or, or on the other hand, you know, could be quite amusing. And then obviously we've got the whole Russia-Ukraine thing. The last time we spoke, it was interesting because as part of my homework for this interview, I listened to our last interview and you said at the time that COVID would just go away. There'd be no lessons learned. And that seems to be happening. You said maybe the world needs a good war. And that happened. Uh, you talked, you talked about in, inflation. You talked about Trump coming back. My, I, my view is Trump will be 50-50 in prison. So I don't think he's going to run. We talked about to put American presidents in prison. I can't think of any. No, well, there's always a first time. He was also the first to be impeached twice, right? And uh, Johnson, Boris Johnson, finally gone. And so your short-term predictions were kind of, I mean, you know, they were not earth-shattering. We didn't, we we haven't had the asteroid hit yet. We haven't had the return of the Messiah. Um, But uh, (laughs) I mean, we are sort of stuck in. I feel a bit groundhoggy. Time has kind of evaporated in a sense. I mean, it's coming back, but, you know, during the pandemic, there were no bookends, there were no weekends, there weren't really any holidays. Every day felt the same. It does slightly feel like that still. The pandemic's still in the background, you know, Trump's in the background, the Russia thing. Uh, I mean, new stuff, yeah, I mean, inflation, the economy, which is teetering, I would say. But that actually possibly comes back to the question of, you know, whether or not to engage with the future. And I, my general view is we shouldn't. I mean, I, I obviously have to, but it's trying to find a balance, I guess. So, you know, be, be in the present as much as possible and really appreciate what's right under your nose. And I'm slightly talking about nature there, but other things as well. And yeah, if you're going to think about the future, do it properly and, and you know, to some end, you know, and think about what you want the future to look like. But I, I couldn't agree more that the lessons learned from the pandemic are pretty much none. Um, I mean, I thought we were all going to sort of reinvent ourselves a little bit. Although, actually, having said that, you know, we did get the great resignation. And I don't think those people, that's about a million people, I don't think they've re-entered the workforce. So I'd like to think they're all sort of, you know, going walking in the Alps or gardening or <laughs> they've taken up some really great hobby yeah, of work. But I don't well, unfortunately, they're, they're all probably cycling for delivery somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's often true. Sam Harris called the COVID a failed dress rehearsal for something much more serious. And I think that's possibly true. Certainly in Ireland, our hospitals haven't been upgraded to the extent that they needed to be. I think if another pandemic or a different disease hit, we probably wouldn't perform that much better than we did the last time. We perform marginally better, but mm. it wouldn't it wouldn't be sort of X five or anything. And I think you know, I, I was reading something actually only so I've been doing some work with the evolution of genomics and. You know, this was a mild one. Let's not forget this. Yeah. It's got a mortality rate of, from memory, somewhere between 1% and 2%. Lower is really well, yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I do remember being in a cabinet office risk workshop back in 2015, and they, they were talking about the pandemic, as I might have mentioned last time, and there was some rather morbid, dystopian discussion about what the capacity was in this country to store dead bodies. Yeah. And there, there are all these places that you don't realise we've got, you know, old cave systems where you can shove dead people, but at some point you just run out. Mm. We should stop talking about this. Um, <laughs> you know, we run out of space. And again, this is this is exactly an example of a future I don't want to engage with. Yeah. If it happens, I'll deal with it. Exactly. But I don't need that in my head right now because yeah. it's not happening right now. Yeah. 
there's obviously the rise, and you t- we talked about this the last time as well, of, of fear and uh, mental health issues and worry and stress uh, by doing that, by worrying about what's going to come next and how bad it might be. Because your new map, which is, again, you can click on this on the blurb of the podcast that shows your sort of predictions now. When you talk about society, you have a point that says the feeling that things are all a bit out of control. And... I was going to say, just to, to straighten you up on that a little bit, that's, that's a map of critical uncertainties, not predictions. Right. So it's, it's things that are really important that we don't know the answer to, which are sort of the bedrocks of creating scenarios. So they're not, yeah, they're not really predictions as such, although you could twist them in that direction, I suppose, some of them. Yeah. Richard produces a, lo- a lot of these, what look like tube map- maps, for want of a better word, that are brilliantly rendered and brilliantly designed. And you can follow the tube of society or the economy or politics along whatever given uh, criteria he's working to and work out by years. And it just is, it, they're, they're fantastic things. You can find them on nowandnext.com, which is also linked in the blurb of the podcast. One of the areas you've been really keen on and you're interested in, I do know, uh, and it's it's <laughs> possibly just as dystopic, is the uh, the whole AI thing. I don't know whether you saw the interview with the normally anodyne Chris Anderson of TED Talk fame, who interviewed uh, Ellen, Elon Musk recently. I mean, I guess the first quote, I'll talk a little bit about what he predicted. Uh, you probably know some of it already. But the first thing to ask about Musk is, in my view, we're looking at a kind of a, Einstein, Henry Ford type character here, possibly an alien, possibly something sent into the metaverse by our AI overlords simulation. But I think he is so weird and non-commercial, even though he has to make money, obviously, but he's so forward thinking and he wants to get us out into the into the galaxy and all this kind of stuff. Or is he a spoofer? Yeah, he's a very good engineer. I think he's been extraordinarily lucky and I agree with you that, you know, one minute he'll, he's saying or doing something incredibly sensible. And the next minute, you can't believe what he just said. Yeah. Um, it, it's almost he's got a sort of split personality. I mean, the one, I mean, on the one hand, I think we need people like that because... There's very few uh, of them. A, he's quite fun, right? But, but B, he, we do need people to suggest that we become a, a multi-planetary species. I personally don't agree with him um, in the sense of colonizing Mars, for example, because I, I think that's practically and ethically a suspect because, you know, if you're going to colonize, I don't understand the Mars thing. If you're going to colonize anything, colonize the moon, it's three, three and a half days away. Mars is a very, very long way away and extraordinarily inhospitable. But I, I guess as a staging point, staging post to go somewhere else, I get it. Although I, my view is that, um, you know, exploration in the future in space isn't going to be with humans. It's going to be with, with robots, AI. It's yeah. not going to be us physically because, mm. because of these issues, practical issues of things like food. And I also strongly feel that, you know, we've actually got a rather lovely planet right here, this mm. pale blue dot in this middle of black nothingness. Job number one is look after the thing we've got, not yeah. worry about trying to find somewhere that's a bit like it. You know, I, I feel quite strongly about that. Um, but then, yeah, and again, he's, you know, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, we've got we've got some people trying to sort of, you know, create immortality at the moment, which strikes me as the worst idea in the world in a, in a sense. But the practical spin-off might be people are just healthier for another five years before they die, or we might cure Alzheimer's along the way, or mm. dementia, or you know, whatever. So 
Um, I wouldn't totally discount him by any set of measures. But to, just to paraphrase some of what he was saying, like he basically said that within the next five years, end of this decade, everyone will have a robot in the house that's human-like and will walk around and do things for you. And that those robots will be the things, as you said, that will be mainly sent out to inhospitable planets like Mars, which you can go to every two years. But then he talked with it by 2050 that he, he and he, Tesla, you know, or whatever it morphs into space origin X or whatever it's called, will be sending a thousand spaceships out every two years to Mars. He's talking like really short term and that big. And the reason he's saying it is, he, I mean, just to your point, just to, just to your point about the blue planet, he's saying everybody's trying to save the blue planet and look what a mess we're making of that. And he said the one thing he wants to protect is this little candle, which he calls consciousness, which is the thing that basically we have that no one else seems to have in the planet, in, in the universe that we know of yet, that allows us to understand that things may not end well here and that we have to get off the planet. Even if everything went swimmingly for the next billion years, it's not going to end well. I don't disagree with that. You know, it's always good to have a plan B. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's amusing. I'll give him that. And he does stretch people's thinking. I'll give him that. He does think quite big. I mean, a robot in every home... I, I think it, uh, Japan had that as an as a ambition by 2020. I'm not quite sure they made that. Um, I'm not sure I want a robot. I mean, we've kind of already got them in a sense. I think he's he's falling in. Oh, my God, that's embarrassing. Hang on. I should probably turn that off. Let me, I, I like your old that. 1920s detective uh, agency phone yeah. ring. Um, no, that's completely <laughs> thrown me. Um, <laughs> we were talking about Musk. Uh, I think he's making a classic mistake. I mean, far, from, far be it for me to level anything against Musk, but I think he's he's being a bit too optimistic. This happens a lot. We, we overestimate the impact of things in the shorter term and wildly underestimate their importance over the longer term. But, I mean, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. We're having this conversation in the week when, I think uh, you may have caught it yesterday in the news, a chess robot broke the finger of a seven-year-old boy he was playing in chess. And it always starts with the chess, as I said. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not sure how true that's true. I did actually write something about that. I'm not sure entirely how true it is. He might have pinched him rather than broken the finger. But, you know, that's not a conscious robot. That's just a robot that thought his finger was a chess piece probably yeah and then in 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 japan last week i think i uh, forewarned you of this one there's a whole move towards head transplants yeah and all the kind of <laughs> like who's the person is it the body or is it the head and is the head with the brain or not you know and what happens if the body gets pregnant is it <laughs> but this idea that they reckon they will be able to transplant a brain onto a deceased corpse and bring it back to life. Yeah, that idea is quite old one. It was an Italian guy originally who said, in the future we'll have head transplants. The only point is we haven't quite worked out how to do it yet. But wasn't that, what was that great film, The Man with Two Brains? Oh, yeah. that was brains, not heads. But, uh, yeah, again, I'll, I'll sort of, I'll wait and see on that one. I think, I think that might be some way off and, and, and has some interesting ethical implications. Yeah. As you, as you Young Frankenstein. And then the other thing that I've, I found, I don't know whether you picked it up, is this thing called Mid Journey. Have you heard about this software? No, no. So Mid Journey is this new, and this is just in beta testing now, but one of my next guests on the show, Andy Fleming, has been all over it. And basically, you can type in tourism ad for Australia done by David Hockney. And it will, within seconds, produce 20 grade A. You'd go into a pitch with them, renders of these visuals that you type in. You can type in propaganda robotic insects China. And they will create 
this right. this image that like I would like I've never seen a, an art director come up with before. James Webb telescope sneaker done by Nike, and this thing comes out. It's all yellow, and it's got like, and and you look at it and you go, okay, that is the end for certainly the ad industry. You know, someone said, well, they still haven't cracked copywriting. I said, yeah, you can just put visit Australia. People want to go there or something on these beautiful images. And you can just make a thousand in an hour, you know, and you can have them, you know, there's no daler boards. There's no sketching. There's no markers. There's no, and it is ridiculously creative. I mean, more creative than I think a human can do. I mean, it only matters it or only means anything if we choose that it does. I mean, we've already got AIs writing movie scripts, plays, books, doing paintings. And I have no doubt that they will be, and are to some extent, beautiful things. And they, might, they may appeal to us in some way. They, they may have worked out how to make something aesthetically pleasing. But what I don't think they will ever have, and this comes back to sort of sentience and consciousness, is I don't think they will ever be able to tap into the human condition because they're not human. They, they they don't know what death would feel like because they'll never die. They don't, you know, they don't understand the fragility of being. They don't understand love. They don't understand betrayal. So therefore, I think there are certain things in, you know, cinematic literature, in, in even advertising, that humans will, will continue to tap into that they won't be able to touch. I mean, another one's humor. Yeah, most most humans can't do that either. <laughs> I know it's a rare, rare skill, and it, and it, to some extent, it's to do with changing the subject or inverting something or looking yeah. at metaphors, analogies. And I think they struggle. I mean, I'm not saying they can't write jokes, but I'm saying I don't think in my lifetime they will write something that will have me on the floor laughing. Well, I, the, I mean, the root of all humor is laughing at someone else's misfortune in a way that's acceptable, and so. I think even getting to a point where, you know, they, they'd be programmed to be polite and probably politically correct and all those kind of things. So, you know, they wouldn't be able to make the sort of Doug Stanhope-esque jump, you know, that, that just causes I mean, us all to recoil. It circles back to the sort of optimism, pessimism thing, because if I think if you do, and there are AI people I know that, that think there is nothing special about human beings, that an AI can potentially do anything we can do, which I find a rather sort of depressing thought. And well, where does that leave us then exactly? Well, you're just going to give me some money for doing nothing and I'm supposed to sort of, I don't know, whatever. Um, I, w- I would prefer to have an optimistic view that says, no, there is actually something special about the human being. Um, I, I, even if that's just ludicrously naive, I would well, like... My, my theory on what's going to happen, and I'm probably talking 100 or 200 years, but I can see it happening already, is that we're walking ourselves into our phones, we're walking ourselves into computers, and we're going to go along with that over time and i think at some point if we take and we'll talk about climate in more detail maybe a bit later but if if we take the ills of the world we are one of the big ills of the world and we may consciously decide to somehow capture consciousness but put it into a digital format let go of the people who are eating shitting pooing machines that are very fragile and leave a world that is possibly robotically done to save the planet and get it back to a state of equilibrium. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had almost that line in Digital versus Human, one of my books. I mean, I think, I think there's basically three broad scenarios. One is this stuff continues to accelerate to the point where we can't cope with it anymore. Hmm. We don't understand it. We can't cope with it. Um, and we, we essentially try to slow it down, block it, stop it. 
So it's sort of backwards. We're going backwards to go forwards in a sense. Mm. We, as you mentioned, we kind of merge with our machines. We integrate them into our bodies to help us deal with the machines. And that's back to Musk's, um, is it neural net? I can't really call yeah, it. Yeah, the thing. Um, the yeah. thing. Um, or as you say, we somehow work out how to download our consciousness and we discard our sort of rather awkward physical bodies. I mean, that's, I, I struggle to see how you do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, 200 years is quite a long way away. We might have worked that out by then. Um, or I suppose the fourth one is we've been living, as you know, it's that old idea of, you know, we've been living in a matrix-like simulation for the last however long, and we just don't know it yet. That might be the fourth. Scenario. Well, it was a good, it was a good segue because I'm reading, you probably heard of this guy, David Chalmers, Reality Plus, which is a yeah. mental book. Uh, he's basically statistically saying that we are in a simulation. That, that whatever way that you skip... Guy, what's he called? Oxford guy, um, philosopher. Um, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he, he, he was the one that kind of popularised the idea. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, to disprove as well. Yeah, well, he, always... he acknowledges that, but he just, I mean, he's just saying the law of numbers and, you know, the explosion of, of uh, the idea that we as a species start creating simulations ourselves, you know, and, and Ready Player One is... Probably a good example of that. As I said, the first step could be this dystopic wasteland where there is an online place you can plug yourself in, which is far more bright and breezy and optimistic and like we'd like the world to be. And we stop and we go and have some food and we have a shit and we go back into it because it's so addictive. And meanwhile, outside, reality just degrades. I have to say, it's far too early to be talking about this. We, it needs to be sort of six o'clock at night with a pint and a, something <laughs> a smoke. I can't. All right. a little we'll, bit. We'll, we'll, well, I just, I, just, I just wanted to touch on the on the AI thing because it's, it's common. Yeah. Like, I think when we first did this in the cheese shop in South Kensington, that was five years ago. And I think the, oh the jump that has happened since then is it's all this and climate is now. It's like climate's really serious now. They're still creeping, though. You know, there's not... I mean, we were talking the other day about, on, on, I think on this podcast, last one or the one before, about the problem with climate. And I mean, you like to fly, I like to fly. The problem is that very cleverly, I think, capitalism has made it the problem of the individual rather than the company. So they'll try and make you feel guilty for taking flights. What they need to say to Ryanair is, Ryanair, you can't fly 20 times to London from Dublin every day. You can only fly three. And capitalism won't wear that. I have, you're, you're right in the sense, I think, that capitalism sort of outsources all its cost in the most general sense to everyone else, you know. I mean, but basically the model has been, you know, dig big holes, pull stuff out, build stuff in factories, create a lot of pollution, stick stuff in landfill, and that's none of the company's cost, really. That's, we all bear that as a world, as a society. Hmm. Um, and funny enough, I think there's a digital equivalent of that going on at the moment, particularly with sort of Facebook and, and to some extent, Twitter and, and Google, where... You know, they are, they are pillaging our minds and to hell with the consequences. The, the problem I have with, with the climate aviation thing is it's so tokenistic. Um, you know, you're not supposed to fly, but it, you know, the fashion industry and textiles is left well alone, which is not far behind in terms yeah, yeah. of emissions. Or, you know, look at air conditioning, steel, cement. Mobile you know, phones, cars, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. As emissions. So unless you are going to be a hermit and knit your own yogurt, I, I think you are, either ignorant or a hypocrite. Hmm. Um, and, and I think we can all do our best and, and cut down on certain things. And also you're looking at somebody's life, you know, you don't know what I do to, to, to actually 
um, contribute to, to um, sequestering carbon. Is that right, phrase? Yeah. You know, you, you're looking at just because he's on a plane, he's bad. Well, actually, there's more to me than just getting on a plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you're right. I think the the, the, the sort of the cost of that is 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 being left to the user. And also, I'm getting a little bit sick of the whole corporate virtue signalling now. I mean, Unilever, for example, is becoming quite tedious as far as I'm concerned, and they're not alone. Um, you know, make your mind up. And and again, tokenistic. You know, they'll say they're wonderful in one area, but then they'll sort of neglect the fact they're doing something in another. And another example of this is electric vehicles. And I think I get really wound up by being I'm a Nissan Leaf or something that says <laughs> whatever it says, carbon neutral or something. It isn't. I mean, okay, the the fuel might be, but the car, I read somewhere you have to drive 198,000 miles in a Tesla to get it to be neutral. Yeah. Um, you'd be better off, I think, in a lot of instances, driving a really old, dirty diesel car for 200,000 miles mm. to buy one of these things. The problems being caused by mining lithium for these batteries is immense. Yeah. And, you know, we, we keep inventing new things like e-scooters and e-bikes that once upon a time you just pedaled or pushed. And these yeah. days they need a sort of small kids in some part of Africa digging out lithium with their bare hands to actually sort of satisfy yeah. our conveniences. We, we The last time we were speaking, we talked about your love of Greece and my love of Greece. And I just came back from uh, 10 days in Denmark which I went, wow, there's a country that has got its shit together. Now, they have 180% tax on new cars. They have two bicycles for every person in the population. So they have 12 million bicycles. And it's pretty, it's not a great climate compared. It's about similar to here in the UK. And uh, everyone cycles everywhere. They don't lock their bike. Well, they, they flimsily lock their bikes and it's there for them. If someone nicks it, they nick someone else's and on it goes. And so on that one level alone, Plus, you know, I, I, I came away from it wanting to watch Borgen because I'd never watched Borgen and I wanted to see what they're, what they're bitching about. But one of the things that happened while I was in Denmark, I'd say half the people that I spoke to, it's a small sample, but all of them said something to the effect of these words, we never let anyone slip between the cracks. So mm -hmm. they, they actually said that spontaneously, that there's nobody in Ireland would say that. It's almost like, oh, yeah, we, we have to accept people will fall through the cracks and make it. But they have come at it from this angle. And you could argue maybe it's, I mean, I didn't find it in the least boring. I find, found them fit, less obese. You can say the same about Norway, Sweden. Norway has a heroin problem out in Bergen, apparently, and Sweden probably has its own problems. But relatively speaking, this is a template for the best outcomes for the most amount of people, which is what I mean, we should be. I don't, I don't know if you were around when I did in Australia when we did the future brand scenarios. And there was one called enoughism, which was a sort of polar opposite of moreism, which is just, you know, capitalism with the volume turned up. And it was, it was always described in terms of being quite Scandinavian. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're very high tax, but they're very high spend. There's a hell of a safety net there. Yeah. And they do seem remarkably happy. I mean, as you say, they've got drug issues. I think Denmark has quite a high suicide rate, but, they, they seem a remarkably content bunch of people, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It's probably a bit, bit of a generalisation, but I think there's certainly something going on there which might be worth digging into. And it's cheaper to live there than Dublin is, you know? So Dublin has got its knickers in an absolute mess. I want to talk to you about that uh, enoughism and this stoic philosophy that you talked about. And you were working on a book the last time called uh, You're Too Busy, You're Not Busy or something. Till the pandemic. Okay, yeah. This is actually written, but I can't get a publisher. I mean, I'm I'm half tempted to call it overwhelmed and undermined, but um, I'm I'm constantly playing around with new titles. But it's it's the, it's about the sort of partly about the myth of busyness. You know, we're not as busy yeah, as yeah, we yeah. are. I mean, some people are generally busy, but most people aren't. Yeah. And it's about 
what we might achieve if we were less busy, if we did certain things slowly, if we took the inconvenient route, if we did absolutely bugger all sometimes, just lounged around. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I think it's clearly true that if you work on a factory production line, the longer you're there, the more productive you are up to a point. But if you are you know, paid to think, you, you might have your most valuable idea of the year in, in a park under a tree on a Tuesday afternoon. You know, there's not necessarily a correlation between being in an office eight hours a day and, and being mentally productive. So, I mean, I've got, I, I'm actually working on something as well, which is not dissimilar. And I've come at it from a kind of a different place. And it's called Stop Peddling. Yeah, yeah. The joy yeah. of, the joy of optimistic nihilism. And yeah. so, and so basically where I, where I've come from is first of all, where we're, our careers and our, our self importance, our ego is so driven into us in the first world. Get a better job, get a better house, get a better car, get a better this, get a better that, become the CEO, become the executive vice president. So there's this kind of, and included in that is have children, get married and buy, you know, it's just such a kind of a, this is, it's almost uh, dogmatic. It's almost like a religion. And to stand outside that and go, first of all, how much is enough, right? So your enoughism, how much money is it going to take? I've got about 20 years left. You know, I've just recently given up smoking, but I drink like a fish. I'd probably be dead by 80 if I'm lucky, right? How much money does it take for me to have 26 more years? I don't have any kids. I'm lucky if I had kids, I'd probably still be working. But getting to this point where you actually won, I don't think I've ever made an ad that was important. But at the time I did. At the time I was, oh, I won a gold, a can and a Grand Prix. I mean, literally looking back, my career is just a kind of a, a, a morass of just, you know, averageness. Okay. Um, and we, we fill ourselves with our own self-importance. So I've been trying to crush the ego and go to the point of, there's no one up there with a clipboard. There's no God up there going, oh, you know, you need to be more industrious. You need to be coming up with more ideas. I wrote a screenplay, which I don't know whether you got to read in the end, but with the dawn. And it was like, someone said to me, oh, you should write another one. And I said, why should I write another one? I've just written that one. Oh yeah, that's really good. But like write another one because that'll give you two, twice, you know, as if, but I don't really care if the screenplay doesn't get made because lots of screenplays don't get made. And so the ones that do probably are luck. If, if no one made the commitments, who cares? There'd be a different famous Irish movie. So this idea of crushing ego, stop peddling. And of course, the funny thing is the rule of stop peddling is if everyone stops peddling, then you have to start peddling again. So don't tell everyone. And second of all, if it's all about stop peddling, why are you writing the book, Sean? <laughs> so oh, well, so I you mean, can tie yourselves up in knots. There is actually something in the Bible from memory about idle hands, you know, and the devil. So devil I think makes it might work. be from there as well. I mean, enoughism was all about, um, enough, uh, you know, having had enough of the way that politicians act, but also, you know, having enough stuff. And I, I do see anecdotally, I haven't seen any proper research on this, but I think generationally there's a lot of people tapping into this of saying, actually, no, I'm not going to work you know, eight, 10 hours a day, five days a week for the next 35, 40 years. No, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, I will rent rather than buy. I will do this rather than that. I think, I think that is potentially a bit of an emergent, quite strong trend there, actually. It's difficult, as you say, it's very difficult to drop out entirely. I mean, I, I can do it because I've, you know, of a certain age and I've built up certain things and, you know, I, I, I can sort of lounge around, but trying to, get 25 year old to lounge around he's probably going to lose his job you know it's, mm. it's a different matter mm. even when i was working in the app business there's all these guys who were like the top braces wearing ceos who've been there for 20 years and are taking home 10 million a year and bonuses and all this kind of crap and even my job like if i if i went working in ireland 
which I don't really want to do, but if I did want to do it or need to do it, you know, the sort of salary I'd be trying to pull down, I might not get it, but would be the equivalent of two people here in an industry that's mm. meaningless anyway. Whereas I would be going, oh, no, I'm very important. I've got a lot of experience. I've worked all over the world. No, no, you don't. You, you, for what we're doing, get two people. Mm. You talked about the last time about the slow movement and, you know, going back to knitting honey and all that kind of stuff. You know, this idea that you don't, if you have enough to live a very successful life, what are you going to do with the extra billion? Stick it in your ears? Oh, or? I know a few people with that problem and they're not very happy. <laughs> yeah. um, but this into the, into the pandemic because there was that first lockdown, um, what, March 2020, where unless you were a sort of a medic or some kind of essential worker, you, you basically had time for the first time. And I think a lot of people question precisely that, like, you know, what am I doing with my life? I'm, am I doing a job that's a complete waste of time? Or, or, or at least am I spending too much time at work and not enough time at home? Should, I should be doing something more sort of ethically based or whatever. And yeah. a lot of people thought, yeah, I've got to change this. So, you know, and it was one of, it's one of those sort of near death experiences where people decide they're going to, if they ever make it through, they're going to change their lives. But obviously what happened was most people made it through and didn't change their lives. Yeah. They've gone back to the, I mean, with exceptions, but they've gone back to more or less what they were doing before. I mean, the working at home thing is probably the only lasting legacy where people are going to say, actually, you know what? Fridays, I'm not coming in. But I can't think of anything else that's going to Australia have been doing that for 30 years, haven't they? <laughs> but the, the, mm. the optimistic nihilism then side of this is the fact that nothing matters. So back to our earlier conversation, the, the planet's going to f- turn into a fireball eventually anyway. And because nothing matters, not, you know, that some things do matter, of course, health and education and stuff like that. But in the grand scheme of things, nothing matters. And nihilists tend to be really pessimistic. Oh, we might as well kill ourselves then because nothing matters. But like my view is, if nothing matters, then kind of everything matters. If there's a movie running in your in your consciousness every day, that's really interesting. We have a movie in our brain that can watch movies. <laughs> you know? There's a Woody Allen film. I stole a line from it um, in a book about education. There's, um, I can't remember which film it is, but the character is Woody Allen playing Albie Singer. Taking him to a doctor because he's, he stopped doing his homework and the doctor says, Alvi, why have you stopped doing your homework? And Alvi explains the nature of the universe, that it's eventually going to implode and everything's going to be burnt to a cinder. So, you know, the answer to the, you know, why are you not doing your, your homework? Alvi says, well, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> um, the point is there is no point. So therefore, as you say, nothing matters or everything matters. And, you know, you can, you can still do something quite significant. I think from the, I've sort of come to the conclusion, I think slightly that you get most satisfaction out of helping other people. I, I hate to say it, but right. the, the Beatles were probably right, actually. Love probably is all you need. You know, helping other people, you know, making the world slightly better, I think is ultimately quite satisfying, even if all you're doing is weeding a roundabout in Slough. If that's your only thing you do, that's a good thing. That's fine. But um, Yeah, the golden rule yeah. still applies. Don't be a cunt. Be nice to people. Look after people. Be kind. Help people. You know, don't be an asshole, you know? And, yeah, yeah. You know, in the in the Buddhist philosophy, greed is is the root of all evil. Is what drives. I mean, you had a great line in your um, in in your critical uncertainty tube map of bad people getting away with it. You know, weaponizations yeah, of I finance. Felt that strongly, actually. Yeah, yeah, I felt that quite strongly recently. Still do slightly. I disagree with you. I don't think Trump will go to jail. I wish he would. Um, you know, Putin, Boris. Um, you know, Trump was the one that was most in my mind, I think, when I was thinking that. But, um, politicians generally, business people generally, it's, you know, I, I sort of grew up in a, in a, in a simple time when bad people got caught and yeah. were punished. And mm. I don't think that's necessary. Maybe that was never true. 
Maybe that was, I just naively thought that was A true. few bad people but got it, caught, but it, lots didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel fair, in a sense, yeah. from that. And I think that's a, if people start really genuinely feeling the whole system isn't fair, then I think the system will have to change. One of the things you mentioned in the economy, economy section was this rise of emotional labour. What's that? So this is the antithesis, to some extent, of, of AI or work that is that is IQ based. So emotional labor would, would be things where you kind of invest your soul and your emotions into it. So perhaps an example would be somebody working on minimum wage in a care home, as opposed to a surgeon, which is, right. is I mean, surgeons have, there's an emotional um, EQ content to surgeons and doctors as well. But I think it's, it's people that deal with people uh, for a very low wage and um, yeah, pour their heart into it is kind of what I was tapping on into there. So one of the things that, you know, back to this sort of stop pedaling thing was I was doing this kind of test idea that imagine if you were, instead of a 50 year old ad man who just went, good luck, I don't, I'm not needed around here and I'll just take the money and run. Imagine if you're like at the number one pediatric surgeon and you save five children's lives every day by how you operate on them and you're the best in the world and you're in the NHS and you're their star surgeon and then you decide fuck this i've done 30 years of this i'm gonna go and live by a lake with my dog and fish i have enough money to get me through the sort of pressure society puts on you uh to call you things like you're well you're being very selfish because you have another 10 years of lives you can even that guy i think should be allowed go and live by the lake because he's he'll have brought new people on and he'll have done his thing you know but we we, we pressure you know, if you if you're non-productive in society, even if you're not costing society anything, you're a waste of space, or you're lazy, or you're no good. You, you know. Whereas I, I I think that there's a you know if you get to, as I said recently to the Don, every day is Saturday. Now, if every day is Saturday, does that get boring, or does that get because when we were working our tits off back in the day, we would have given our right tip for every day being Saturday, right? And so it's a little yeah. bit experimental, but there's no shortage of books to read. I mean, it's almost too much, you know, as you said before. The problem is life is becoming increasingly expensive. And, you know, it's, it's great in Scandinavia because you, if you've contributed, you know, you can take your, your feet off the pedal a bit. But, you know, in this country, you know, it, it's difficult to sort of take relax when you've got winter approaching with the, with the oil crisis and all the rest of it. Everything that used to be provided, not everything, but a lot of things that used to be provided by the state or were free now cost money. Yeah. Um, it's quite difficult, although it's not impossible. I mean, you can move to parts of the world or parts of Britain where, you know, there's a commu- sense of com- community and everyone helps themselves and generally things aren't too expensive. You know, catch your own fish, grow your own vegetables. It is doable. It's not easy, but it's doable. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the person at the library on the reception desk or the, or the sort of checkout person in the supermarket that's paid an absolute pittance, but just has this real sort of genius about you know, dealing with people, understanding them, spotting when something's wrong or when they might need something. That's not valued. You know, we, we value IQ um, and a certain sort of CV. And, you know, people can be really, really good with people and, and struggle to find a job that, that pays the bills. And I think, I think that might shift. I think, you know, if we've got AI doing more of the IQ work, the EQ stuff might might be slightly more in demand. You know, the human touch stuff as well. Hopefully, will will come back. Not come back. Yeah, come back. I suppose one of the books that I 
um, was most impressed with during lockdown was Michael Sandel's book, uh, The Tyranny of Merit. And again, this goes back to my point where we're, we're inculcated at a very young age to be successful and better than the other guy. And this, you know, this, this, the, the complete lack of luck, you know, attribute, attribution of luck to, I mean, most of my career was, look, I was okay at it, but like, I mean, you know, I was, I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time in a number of agencies where I worked and that got me, got me further. And like, you know, you tend to believe your own bullshit. And so the, the, the and, and, and particularly when you talk about checkout people and uh, people who empty our bins and people who push trolleys through hospitals, there's just this massive imbalance, you know, where they're getting paid three times less than an account executive in a shit ad agency who doesn't know what an ad is. We've got we've got people that are very very clever, and Boris might be a very good example of this. We've got very very smart people that are, that have no ethical grounding. I mean, he was famously described as a moral vacuum, wasn't he? And I think we, you see that with CEOs as well. I mean, they might be very clever at their job, very clever with numbers or something, but they they have no ethical grounding. They're yeah. a sort of, they're a spiritual vacuum as well. And and yet you, you yeah you've got a road sweeper who is deeply ethical and fair and all the rest of it. And there's somehow a complete imbalance between those two. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, what do I think? I don't know. I've gone down a dead end with that. <laughs> well, I think, I think to, you know, business is, you know, as I say, has the morals of an Alsatian. I mean, it, it, everywhere it goes, it just doesn't give a shit. It, it, it doesn't give a shit about pollution. It doesn't give a shit about trotting on the little guy. It doesn't give a shit about you're fired. I mean, it's, it's almost Donald Trump personified. How do you feel about your own country? Just mentioning Boris Johnson there and the whole uh, EU situation. We're obviously we're um, obviously raising an eyebrow over here at the two dopey new candidates that are coming on board. I don't think there's going to be much. I, I'm sort of optimistic based on absolutely no evidence. We'll muddle through. Um, we we've got we attract we have and we attract really good people in this country. We're quite well positioned geographically. Uh, you know, we've got world class sort of science here. We're quite entrepreneurial, although we can't scale very well generally. But it worries me. The direction worries me and has worried me for quite a long time. But then you look, you know, you look eastwards and then, then you look at China and you go, at least we're not China. Britain would, would sort of fit into my box labeled wait and see. I'm not going to get terribly excited or judgmental yet because there's not really enough evidence. Um, we will see see how it goes but i'm not i'm not averse to moving countries if it takes a turn i don't like i mean the numbers to me just point the, sorry the numbers and the lorry queues and the everything points to they're eventually going to have to come back into europe at some in some shape obviously britain never that could be a, a short term thing you, you might you're in danger of extrapolating there into the longer term but don't don't forget the short term extrapolation was never meant to look like this <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, again, I mean, I'm not really engaging with it. Yeah, there's a train strike today, so I didn't get on the train. You know, right. lucky me, I don't have to get on a train today. Yeah, it's just, it's just not something I need to worry about or read about. And then, what about just finally the sort of intolerance and tribalism? And you know, I, one of the things about the COVID thing was, particularly the COVID deniers and the conspiracy theorists and all these people who are you know i, I remember um there's a great uh, a great sketch by Stuart lee which uh he, he says um you know i'm not from scotland but that doesn't mean like that i you know the loch ness monster doesn't exist and he goes i know nothing about biology herpetology history geography lakes 
you know, he goes through this whole thing. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> and he had all of these people oh. who are just so fucking stupid. I mean, it, it, it's, it, I'm not meaning to be arrogant or highbrow, I'm not the brightest button in the box myself, but just this absolute mass, like the, the, the Trump thing, the stolen election, the fucking, like, this, we're talking about half the people. I know there's an IQ bell curve that says half the people are stupid. It is staggering how stupid Sorry, some say, people say, are. say again. It is staggering how stupid some people are. And, and it's almost celebrated. It's a bit like, it's a bit like obesity now. You know, it's, it's, it's celebrated rather than, you know, shamed. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's those couple of books actually that came out recently, which was challenging the right of the elite to govern and everyone should, you know, they've, they've had too much power, but actually, I think you need a little amount of literacy to participate in society, and it is, yeah. it is quite concerning. I mean, I was in the post office the other day. I had 28 photocopies, and they were 10p each, and they couldn't work out <laughs> what that came to. And I went, oh, wow. And she was like 25. It's like, wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm back on pass, but that, that really takes the prize. And the, I mean, it's it's one thing being uninformed. I don't, you know, that's I don't have an issue with people being not no. well informed or anything. I don't have an issue with that. It's when they then sort of grandstand it and demand to be heard. Yeah, do um, your own research. Everyone's opinion is is equally worthy. Yeah, you know, there's and there's no truth and there's no, which is clearly nonsense. And I, I, um, I to your point, I don't think it's about the elites because one of the some of the biggest fucking dopes are the Eaton crew that surrounded Boris Johnson, okay? I mean, I'm talking about ethics. I'm talking about people who are not amoral, like we just talked about cap- most capitalists and many of the bosses we've worked for. I mean, the, the Borg, I don't know whether you've watched Borg and that show I was talking about in Denmark, but it, it started in 2010 and this this new damsel who's going to take over Danish politics arrives and she's 42 and she's like everyone loves her and she's right on and she's great and she takes over as prime minister and she's really lovely and she's got a nice family and then they waited until 2022 to bring out the third or the fourth season by now she's 54 she's fucking got the menopause no men are fucking she's bent a little bit she's trying desperately to protect her kind of integrity and her ethics and she's telling lies behind journalists back and she's getting caught out by and you know it's just terribly tragic and power corrupts and she's she's a haggerhead has been <laughs> it just by the way on on the sort of stupidity that the if you haven't seen it, there's a great movie called idiocracy I yeah, have seen it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, post Trump is pretty funny, actually. Yeah. Um, and oh, I don't know. So where do you go with that one? I don't know. That well, was, I mean, yeah. I I think where you you know it, it does come back to some things that you've been doing and that I suddenly have started. I mean, I started looking. I I, t- I talked about this sort of pie chart, like, and when I was working, say, as the head of strategy and P and G. 60% of my brain every day was, you know, taken up with razor blades and shaving and who's ad and this ad and this meeting and I've got to talk to China. Like 60% of my brain. You take that out and you're left with a lot of bandwidth. Uh, mm. and, and so I've kind of been filling that with philosophy and things that I, because I never went to college. But, but, but what I haven't been filling it with, much to the chagrin of my father who died last year and my, 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 some of my family is, getting back into another big advertising job and making lots more money. I think a lot of this is coming off this sort of empowered individualism, which sounds wonderful on one level, but it, you know, it is this dog-eat-dog, everyone's out for themselves, everyone's sort of feeling wronged in some way, they're a victim in some way, which maybe they are, 
But I, I, and I think the solution back to this thing of not getting too anxious about the future. I, you know, I'd rather we spent our time trying to work out what we want the future to be like and then try and build it. And it strikes me that we need almost a strategy for the human race, or at least Britain or something, which is yeah. about, you know, what is Britain? What do we like? What do we dislike? I mean, there's a really interesting book I bumped into recently by Dan Pink. He's done a load of research, I mean, thousands and thousands of interviews, asking people what they regretted most in their lives. And then he sort of reversed engineered it because, well, that's the things they clearly value the most, yeah. which is an interesting way of looking at things. And I think we, we almost sort of need to do that at, at, at sort of scale to work out, you know, what, well, what do we want Britain or Europe or the world to look like in, in 20 years, 30 years' time? I would have thought that sort of human contact would be pretty central to that community, fairness, honesty, and all this kind of stuff. And if we were all sort of, you know, going in the same direction, you know, clearly we're going to get buffed and, you know, go off course a bit, but you need to trim the sails or whatever. But it would, it would give people a sense of direction, which at the moment I think a lot of people, there's just no point to anything. I mean, I, I, I made the mistake of walking past a Weatherspoons yesterday in a small yeah. town in East Grimsby <laughs> about three o'clock. And there were people in there. There was a guy with a pint playing Candy Crush, or at least it looked like Candy Crush. Some couples that are all staring at their phones with their vodka and tonics. It's like I've sort of stumbled into this sort of parallel universe. And I don't know quite what those people's purpose or aim in life was. It, it certainly wasn't terribly apparent. They were kind of existing, really. And you just wanted to sort of get up and shake them, but which is ridiculously offensive thing to say because you don't know what that is going on in their lives. But it, yeah, I just feel as, as a nation, as a world, we've just lost direction. And we've, we've been sort of hit by all sides recently with pandemic and Trump and Ukraine and all the rest of it. But once all that's stabilized, which might take a while, we, I think we just do need to work out you know, what we value, what we don't want. You know, this whole thing about AI, about what it's going to be capable of, is, is a ridiculous discussion, really, because at the moment we're in charge of it. So well, what do we want it to be capable of? Mm. And, are, you know, we should be discussing, well, actually, we, we don't want it doing X. We'd like that to remain the preserve of humans, thank you very much. And at the moment, it's this sort of technological determinism where it'll just do whatever it's going to do, which is nonsense. It's going to do whatever a very small slice of Silicon Valley would like it to do to make a lot of money is what it's going to do at the moment. Yeah. But if, if we feel that's wrong, then we need to restrain it. And this is back to that sort of narrative and vision thing that's, that's lacking at the moment, in my view. But the problem is we're allergic to interference by legislation and government and watchdogs and that's taking away our freedoms and the libertarian movement is like oh just let people go and see where it happens you know 50 years ago or 60 years ago if we said what do we want the world to be we would have said we don't want anyone to starve mm. and and that that was not a kind of a it's a pity we don't have enough food for these people it was a distribution issue we have the food. We just don't. We don't give it to these people because why? We don't. They're black. They're from Africa. I don't know. That was never even fixed. Even to this day, there's a whole new bloody famine uh, thing happening in the in, in East Africa now, as we talk. By the way, you mentioned tribalism earlier. I think that's a really interesting word, and I think I think there is a lot of tribalism at the moment. I think it's being driven by sort of fear and anxiety, and we feel safest when we're with people like us, whatever that means. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that is going to grow. And, and, and it, there's a nice side of tribal, but there's also a sort of deeply xenophobic, nasty side. Yeah. And I think that's what we've increasingly got at the moment. But it's really interesting with Ukraine how, you know, where I am, everyone, if you shop at Waitrose, it's almost mandatory to have Ukrainian living in your house. And, um, 
I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all, but yeah. where were we for the Syrians and the Afghans? Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, I've said this. It's thing. I know. It's, yeah. it's really, I think that was possibly tribal to some extent. They looked European. Yeah. Therefore, we'll have them. Yeah, they're not in Europe. Um, and also, you know, I hate to say it, but the most racist people in Europe are all down that spine, including Russia. Like, that's where the Hungarians, I mean, I was talking recently, the Hungarians playing, they played England behind closed doors, they let 11,000 school kids under 12 in in a loophole and the school kids booed well. the black players for England. Right? So talk about, talk about, oh, it's only a small select few. No, it's not. It's endemic. The, there, there, is, there is also, of course, another scenario, well, it's not a scenario, but there is the, the idea which I think a lot of younger people subscribe to, or some younger people, careful with my words, um, where we're just bloody useless. We've screwed it up. We're not going to do the plan any good. And frankly, there should be another pandemic. We should die out and leave it to the ship and ants or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, is, yeah. that is a possibility. I I've heard that one. Ways forward. Um, yeah. I was going to talk about not reading newspapers. I'm much more relaxed since I've stopped watching the news. I'm, I'm not, this is not a binding thing. I haven't totally stopped, mm-hmm. just to be clear. Um, I, I sort of walk into the room and it's playing now and again. If something like the Johnson fiasco happens, I might switch it on. But it's not a ritual that it used to be. And I don't read daily newspapers anymore. Although, I, you know, I can glance at somebody else's on the tube. I tend to buy Financial Times Weekend and the New York Times Weekend on paper and read it a week or two late in a sort of retrospective reading kind of way. But I think a lot of, a lot of daily news, it, well, it's not really news. It's opinion. And also, they're, they're hysterical. I mean, the Guardian the other day had turned into the sun. The, I photographed it. The, the headline was, you know, something, something heat wave. Thousands may die. Now, that wasn't necessarily wrong. Thousands could have died, but they probably weren't going to. It was this hysteria. Well, that, I mean, the, press- the Daily Mail had, you know, summer heat wave snowflakes up in arms, you know, like they were just basically going, like, just be yeah, thankful yeah. for the hot weather, you know? I mean, it's... Most of this stuff doesn't happen. Half of the stuff you, these people talk about is wrong. Mm. Even if it's right, it doesn't particularly concern me. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a strong recommendation. Just disconnect from the news. There's a very good article by Ralph Gobble, I think his name was, German guy, about why we shouldn't read the newspapers, which you can probably find online. But, yeah, that's I'm sort of much more relaxed since I've sort of disengaged from the news a bit. That, that is definitely true. What What would you say if I had to ask you to tinker yourself up for the last comment on this podcast and make it positive what would you how would you answer that um well without sort of doing some line from a peanuts cartoon such as um <laughs> you know well actually it's not the fridge magnet philosophy i specialize in that good it's grief the world, it's not the end of the world even if it is there's nothing you can do about it so relax um well actually there's Douglas Adams wasn't it hitchhiker's guide don't panic that's that's wisdom um, I think get an allotment. <laughs> and if you can't get an allotment, buy a house plant. You'll be happier. Something to look after. Nature. Richard Watson, as ever, thank you for being on a pint with Shawnee B. We will be checking in with you more often, I think, as the world starts to drive itself at a million miles an hour. Thank you, mate. You take it easy. Ah!